my feeling is that most people in these movements are not happy. And that's actually something that we need to latch on to when we're trying to pull people out of these movements, because we need to show them that actually there is another way. Even if you're stuck, even if you think you're stuck in a white supremacy movement, you can get out. There is a way out. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Trying to find out how to do life, but it turns out nobody knows. Hello, thank you for listening. I guess there's not much else to do in these times, and (laughs) this is how weird this entire situation is. I was about to say, for those of you not in the UK. But then I realized that, of course, this is international. Um, If you're listening in the future, hello. This is a podcast recorded during the coronavirus. Uh, If you are listening from the distant, distant future, I, at the moment, no one really knows what's going to happen. Uh, It looks bad. Uh, Let's not. Let's. I hope this. Let, I'm going to try and not talk about that particular thing uh, for more than for, from now on, because I don't want this to be a sad thing. I want this to be something where you can uh, take your mind away from it. So to set the scene, uh, I, I'm sitting on my bed in the middle of my tiny studio flat amongst all of my furniture, which has been pushed into the middle and put on top of each other. I cannot access anything. This is why I have to record this intro on my phone because my microphones are, I don't even know, because I'm painting my entire flat. Am I allowed to do that? No, I'm not. I'm of course not allowed to do that. I rent, but um, landlords can go fuck themselves. And also this project has been taking me three days so far and I have hardly thought of the virus. So it really, really helps. Um, There was a short period where I thought I was still going to do my tour shows <laughs> uh, in a few weeks. For those of you asking about tour shows, I don't know anything. I don't know anything yet. We are working on uh, rescheduling all the ones that have been cancelled. It's it's hard, right? Like last week, I still thought, last week at the same time, I thought that I was going to go to Glasgow and Edinburgh uh, to do shows and then now I don't even know if the Edinburgh Festival is going to happen basically so it's all a time of uncertainty but what I do want to say uh, is uh, I'm going to let you listen very soon to uh, Vidya Ramalingam she's incredible uh, she just you know travels the world talking to Nazis <laughs> she's amazing what an incredible person what I want to say and I'm stalling a bit because I don't know how to say it is obviously so I'm a I'm self-employed I'm an artist I am a renter and I am part of the group of workers who are basically by the government we're told to go fuck ourselves which is such an unpredictable situation (laughs) to not know if I can pay rent and what I do want to say is that in June, it'll be 10 years since I started doing stand-up. 
and probably around five, six years since I started podcasting. And I don't know, there's something, something happens to your brain when you're on stage and, you know, people are sometimes <laughs> laughing and applauding. And I'm all, I've always been extremely grateful that people like what I did and that they, you know, showed up. And, you know, when I moved from doing gigs to people who didn't know who I was because no one knew who I was to suddenly doing gigs to people who came to see just me, that was an incredible experience. And, and I'm very, very, very lucky. And then something has happened in the past couple of days where... I've sort of publicly just announced, not even announced, I've just been talking about how I'm nervous and I'm scared of not being able to pay rent or stay living in London or, you know, maybe who knows when we'll uh, be able to do anything again. And the outpour of support from you, from... I mean, I have 13 new patrons this week. And I, it is so, I'm so humbled by, this is, I, I'm, you don't have to help me, you know? Like I am, I'm, for the most hardcore of you, I'm a weekly voice in your ears for about an hour. And then I'm probably a, an annual comedy show, right? That's not a lot. Uh, maybe I pop up on your Instagram feed sometimes. or But, you know, I'm, I'm essentially a, a, just a comedian. And for you to voluntarily just support me, <laughs> it, I've, I, I'm so humbled. I don't even know how to really say this, but I, I do want to say it. Um and I don't, I, I thought, oh, my, should I just write this down and, you know, so it sounds more coherent, but I don't, I don't even know if I could do that because I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's incredible. It's incredible being, becoming so, I've, I've just become so aware of how incredible my listeners and followers and whatever how amazing you are and how oh this sounds disgusting but um I feel loved <laughs> um, but that's that's what's happening I feel taken care of I feel supported and I feel hopeful despite you know <laughs> what's happening in the world right now so thank you thank you thank you Thank you so, so, so much. <sighs> right, enough of that. I'm going to let you listen to a chat about Nazis now. Um, you know, that other problem that also still exists that we had momentarily uh, perhaps forgotten about, or perhaps that just added to everything. What I do want to say is stay inside, stay the fuck inside, stay inside. I know you're all, I mean, you're my listeners, you're always inside, right? This isn't too big of a difference for most of us, but please, for the love of God, please stay inside. Please stay inside. Okay, I will now let you listen to, oh, I mean, and by the way, for the next 
many episodes. They're going to be recorded over Zoom. I hope the quality is okay. I'm, I have so many chats set up with so many amazing people. So don't worry. I'll, I'll be coming into your ears. That sounds not like that. Sorry. Ooh, I mean, I've been alone now for a week. This, these intros are going to get weirder and weirder. But uh, I'll be um, releasing stuff that can enter your ears um, uh, once a week still. The virus will not take that away from us. So please now enjoy one of my first amazing, amazing, amazing chats with the incredible. Uh, oh, and if you want to know something about her first, go see her TEDx talk. It's Vidya Ramalingam. For people who might not know who you are, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Vidya Ramalingam, um, and I'm the founder of an organization called Moonshot, and we work to respond to all forms of hate um, and violent extremism and just um, destructive behaviors online. Amazing. And and how did, well, let me just start because this is a strange time to be recording anything, isn't it? So how, how are you doing with with the with the virus, I guess? Yeah, it's um it's really strange times. Um yeah, it's 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 strange how everything has changed just within a the course of a couple of weeks and mm. um it's hard to even plan ahead for what things will look like in a few weeks, but um yeah, I'm I'm self-isolating at the minute not because I'm sick, um but because my partner has a cough. Um he's fine, but uh but yeah, it just means that I've been holed up inside for the last week or so. Um but you know, it's it it is what it is and um you know, it sounds like the UK's headed in the direction where everyone's going to have to do this over the next couple weeks. So, um just getting in early preparation. And how are you dealing with that? Are you a, an inside person generally or is it driving you a bit mad? Well, the funny thing is, I wouldn't say I'm an outdoorsy person, so I wouldn't say I'm the I'm the person who's going to go hiking or out on runs. But uh, I guess when you're forced inside, you suddenly realize how important it is to mm. get fresh air and to um, be out in the world, and also just to be with people. You just realize mm. how much energy and um, creativity and uh, and and just kind of a sense of, of happiness comes from interacting <laughs> with other people. So, yeah, I guess it's in moments like this that you learn you learn about the things which actually are really important to you. Yeah, are you an anxious person? Do you deal with anxiety? I don't consider myself to be an anxious person. Um, you know, I think I, I, I think I, I always have historically just put things into boxes rather than feel, um, you know, completely ridden with anxiety. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, I guess anxiety presents itself in different ways. Um, and so even if I'm not the person who's having a panic attack, you start to see changes in your behaviors sometimes, which mm. you realize might be might be caused by anxiety, just it's coming out in a different way than it is for other people. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what's so interesting about what you actually do, which I'd love to talk to you about. So what is your... I mean, when I, I, I met you at the, the TEDx um, event where you talked about how you're just casually <laughs> meeting white supremacists and that in itself, do, going to do that is, does that require a special type of person? I guess I, 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 I suppose it does. I, I guess I, my feeling is I, I'm not... I'm I'm not someone who ever thought of myself as being um you know outspoken or uh or the most confident person or um the person who was out going to be out there confronting people who were different 
from me. I mean, when I was growing up, I was always um, a relatively shy kid, um, you know, definitely um, amongst the, the kind of weird crew at school, um, not, um, not the most outspoken. Um, and, and if I was with my family members, I mean, if you asked my family, they would have considered me to be really quiet. Um, and so I think, I think the idea of then in adulthood being the type of person that would go to white nationalist rallies, I think that idea even felt strange to me um, when it was happening. Um, <laughs> but you just find yourself, you find yourself in a position doing something sometimes that feels, feels right for you and it feels like what you need. Um, and I guess the, the reason why I started doing it at the time was that, you know, I was, I was working with anti-racism groups and anti-racism organizations and um, felt really passionate about the fight against against the far right, against um, anti-immigration movements. And I just felt this increasing frustration. There was so much good happening. I, I should start by saying that there was so much good happening within the anti-racism mm -hmm. field. But I just felt an, an increasing sense of frustration that, you know, what we were doing in anti-racism groups was really preaching to people who already believed in the cause. You know, we were bringing together and, and galvanizing the, the great and the good that already believed racism was bad. And what we were less good at doing was crossing that boundary and actually talking to people on the other side. And I just started to think, you know, how are we ever how are we ever going to change these people's minds if we aren't even talking to them? And so I just felt an urgency, I guess, at the time, and it felt like the right thing to do to just start talking to them. Um, and so, yeah, to answer your question, I don't know if it takes a, a special kind of person. I don't think I'm necessarily a special kind of person. I just felt an urgency and it just felt like the right thing to do. And um, once you actually do it, once you cross that divide and realize that actually you can have conversations with people on the other side, I guess it started to, to get addictive. You feel, um, you know, you start to realize there's openings here. You know, I, I actually, I'm, I'm understanding these people um, and I never thought I would. And so I guess I kept going with it once I started. Amazing. Um, how did you get into the, the whole field to begin with? Well, I... How, how far back do you do you want to go? I want to go all the way back. I want to go back to the moment you were a child and you thought, I want to change the world. <laughs> well, I, so as a kid growing up, um, I, I grew up in America, um, the kid of Indian immigrants. And while my parents definitely did have a network of, of other Indian American friends, um, certainly the, the the area that I immediately, the immediate area that I grew up in wasn't hugely diverse. I mean, there weren't that many other um, Indian or dark-skinned kids in, in the classrooms that I was in. And, and I think I just spent a lot of time as a kid thinking about race and thinking about my race and my identity. Um, and being really honest, Sophie, I think I, I spent most of that time wishing I was white. And, you know, desperately, desperately wishing that I was just a, you know, a normal white kid and realizing over and over again that actually I wasn't. Um, and I and I think and I, I don't think I could have reflected on this as clearly um, at the time. I think it took many years for me to realize that that was how I felt um, mm -hmm. and actually years of reflecting on the feeling of embarrassment I had about my parents, which, again, it took until adulthood to realize that that was crazy. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I love my parents and I'm, I'm actually, I'm very proud now of my Indian heritage and my Indian identity, but man, was it a journey to get there. 
And so I guess, um, you know, I guess as I, as I got older, I realized that actually most of my life I had been fascinated by whiteness and fascinated by um, what it is that causes people to either feel an intense pride for their racial identity um, or their racial background and what it is that causes people to feel deep shame about their racial background. And so, um, you know, I think that's ultimately what got me into, into this field of work was just, um, you know, I, I was, I was all consumed with, um, with trying to understand my, what I needed in terms of race when I was a kid and trying to understand what other people needed, um, as a result of their race and as a result of the community they grew up in and how they saw race. So um, as, as, an, as, as an adult, I started to actually just work on issues of racism, uh, working on migrant rights. And, and yeah, and again, um, you know, what got me into this space was just seeing, uh, realizing that actually, if I wanted to deal with people who believed in purest notions of whitehood, that, um, you know, that, that white people were more supreme, if I wanted to try and do something about that and change their beliefs, I would need to understand them. I would actually need to talk to them, know why they were there. And that's the only way that I would start to understand how to get them out of that mindset. Mm. Did you ever, did you ever feel like you understood them a bit? Like I imagine you must have met a fair amount of racists growing up. And did you have a, like, were you curious back then? Did you think about, did you have any feelings towards them? Were you, uh, was it, were you afraid or were you hating them? Or, cause I imagine you look at racists differently now that you've met a lot of them. I don't yeah, know if that makes I, sense. Yeah, no, I, it, it makes sense. Um, I mean, when I, when I was a kid, I don't, I, I think I, I, I am certain as a kid that I experienced racism and that my family experienced racism, although they never talked about it in that way. We never mm -hmm. talked about racism as a family, really. And so I don't think I really learned to call out racism for what it was until I was an adult. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think I learned to reflect on, on the interactions I had had with people as racist interactions until I was an adult. Um, and being frank, I think I still struggle with that. Um, I still sometimes experience things and then find myself in self-doubt for days thinking, was that racism? I don't know if that was mm -hmm. racism or not. Was that person racist? I don't know. Um, I guess the one thing that I really learned from my experience, um, you know, meeting people in white nationalist movements was that the term racist is, is really limiting in some ways. Um, and, and actually the people who were in these movements, a lot of, uh, you know, a hell of a lot of them were racist for sure. Some of them, I don't think they were racist. I think they just had, I, I think they had landed in, in a place and landed with a group of people who were presenting them with solutions to all of their problems mm. and and racism racism provided a solution and and for a lot of those people they didn't even fully believe it you know that that was the crazy thing was that so many people in those movements were questioning the ideology all the time and questioning whether or not the group was the right place for them um, and so I guess I guess maybe something I learned through actually meeting people in these movements was that it's not as clear-cut as racist or not racist sometimes sometimes you have to dig a, li a little bit deeper to really understand why someone is saying something and that's that's what's going to help us actually get them out of that mindset amazing what was so what, what was the the first time you went to a rally 
The first time I went to a rally um, was in Stockholm, and this was in the summer of 2010. Um, and I, yeah, it was, you know, I, 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 I I'm going to be honest. I didn't. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I didn't go there with a, a major plan, um, and I. I just. I knew the the rally was happening, so I just turned up. Um, I stood. I stood for the first rally I went to. I stood pretty far back. I didn't. I didn't go right up to people in the group um, for the very first one. I stood around the back. Um, it was still strange that I was there. There were definitely some journalists there, um, but there weren't really any people of color there. Um, so people were definitely staring at me, um, and I, you know, I, I felt self conscious. I'm human. I felt self conscious about it. Um, knew they were wondering what I was doing there, but I think most people probably assumed I was a journalist. So for the first time I attended, I just really was trying to build up my confidence to actually then on future rallies that I went to, to actually then start conversations with people and actually go up to them and talk to them. Um, but the first one, I just went to observe and try and see how I would feel um, and get comfortable with it. Comfortable is maybe not the right word because I never felt comfortable the whole time I was doing that. But, um, but you know, to get as, as confident as I could to actually start a conversation with someone in the group. So how, how did you feel? How does it feel? Uh, to, to talk to someone in these, in well, these movements? The first time you sort of saw it and the first time you were there, you know, like the first time you, you, one thing is seeing it on uh, the internet, like a rally, rallies in themselves are always quite, you know, there's, a, there's an energy, any kind of rally, any kind of march. Right. And then, right. But when you're there, like just, you know, the, what the pride parade, even that is like the first time I was watching the pride parade. I was like, oh, there's like an energy, there's a life. And I can imagine yeah. the opposite, but in a very bad way with uh, white nationalist rallies. So what, what, what did you feel when you were there? The first time you kind of were in it? Yeah, I, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't shaking and I wasn't nervous. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, and I, I guess if I if I think back on it, the the moment that I remember the most clearly and, and feels most vividly in my mind, um, that the, I can kind of feel the emotions coming back now, even as I talk about it, was um, seeing children there, oh, seeing, okay. you know, children there with their parents. You know, these are, you know, three-year-olds, um, seven-year-olds, um, you know, really young kids who, you know, they, they don't know any better. Mm. They're not old enough to be able to critically think about what mm. their parents are are bringing them to, what their parents are telling them, um, and that that not only scared me but broke my heart. Um, mm. And just you know, I I didn't I wasn't I don't think I was prepared for that. I don't think I had anticipated seeing children there. Um, I guess maybe the antidote to that was in that very first rally. I remember I remember seeing children there with um, the white supremacists. And then I remember also seeing there was one family um, that was there to protest. Um, there were, sorry, there were a number of people there to protest. But I remember seeing one family there to protest. And there, there were these really adorable kids. Um, they must have been kind of, you know, five years old mm. and eight years old or so. And they were holding up signs which um, had hearts on them and said in Swedish, you know, Sweden is for everyone. Mm. And, you know, we, we, we love anyone. It doesn't matter where you're from. 
Um, and, and so I guess that was, that was a really helpful emotional antidote to see, um, you know, on the one hand, a really scary potential future for these kids that grow up in this sort of environment in a white supremacist environment, but then on the other hand, um, you know, the potential, um, and, and hope and families that are teaching their children to love and, um, and to, to welcome people rather than turn people away. I'm sort of curious. So what is the environment like? Because if people seek out these circuits, these, I don't know what you call environments, these groups, because they want to feel some kind of belonging, is it an, I don't know if this makes any sense, is it a nice place to be in, like, if you're part of the group? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, some of the rallies were not I, I wouldn't say they were particularly fun, especially, um, you know, the police are surrounding them for a, a lot of those rallies, um, mm. usually a small group of people, um, sometimes pretty somber. Um, I guess where I found most that these these people, where I saw most um, these people having fun was at um, their kind of private gatherings. So I, you know, as I, as I attended rallies, got to meet people in the movement as I, um, Got to know people. I mean, I, I did life history interviews with them over the course of many months, um, and I was trained as an anthropologist, so that was my approach. I kind of went in and and asked to do to do interviews with them. Once I got to know them well enough, they started to invite me to their other gatherings, um, to meetings that they were holding, to their um, you know their their bunker where they would organize meetings, um, and then slowly but surely they started inviting me to their homes. So I got to meet their families, their um, you know their wives and their kids. Most of them were men, um, and and I guess it was in those settings that I really saw the social value of these mm -hmm. movements, and I saw that they you know they were the camaraderie they had, the support they were providing to one another. Um, and I started to understand why these sorts of groups were attractive to them. Um, but that, that was mostly in private settings rather than necessarily at the, the rallies. Mm. Cause the rallies, you know, yeah, they, they, these groups aren't popular. There were, you know, people there throwing eggs at them. Sometimes they had mm. people shouting at them, um, and police there. So it's, I don't think those events are always necessarily fun for people mm. who are, who are there to protest. Mm, yeah, of course. So were you, were you surprised that, you know, when you got to sort of know them, were you surprised that it was, that there was a camaraderie or I, I think I just, if it's when it's something that's so based on hate, or at least that's the, how it looks, right. You'd assume that it was a really uncomfortable energy to be around. Just a bunch of people sitting around hating. Yeah. It, you know, there were, I, I guess there were, there were moments, there were moments where, um, especially once I got to know people in the movement and I knew that they were questioning some of the ideologies and I started to see how they were interacting with other people and, and I could sense the tension and could sense their discomfort with challenging certain people because of hierarchies mm -hmm. inside the group. Um, it was only once I got to know those dynamics that I started to really see, okay, there's actually, this is tense. There's, there's some, there's some issues here and there's actually some conflict here. Um, and these people, you know, don't feel like they can, they can openly challenge. Um, so I, I definitely saw some of that once I got to know people. Um, but on, on other occasions, I remember finding myself, um, at a, it was a lecture that was put on by a, a group of white nationalists 
And it was a pretty formal event, um, a pretty, yeah, a formal lecture with probably about 100, 150 people in the audience, maybe. I was obviously the only person of color. Um, and there was, they had a speaker in who was projecting up onto the screen um, photos of the brains of um, of black people, of uh, Arab people, of, um, of I, I think they also showed a kind of East Asian brain, and they were basically talking about how um, men from these different backgrounds were, um, were wired genetically to be violent towards white women, which is obviously not based in science, not mm. accurate at all. It's obviously a conspiracy theory and not based on any factual um, information. but. I remember at the time that as the speaker was explaining to the group, he made some sort of joke about, about um, an eth- one, of the, one of the ethnic groups he was referring to, and everyone in the audience started laughing. And I just remember thinking, like, this was a very formal event, and I, and, and I, was, I was feeling very uncomfortable um, mm. watching this presentation, listening to what was being said. And I remember everyone around me laughing, and then some of the people in the row that I was sitting turning and looking at me to see whether, I, you know, what face I was making. Mm. And I obviously, I mean, I thought what was being said was horrendous. I mm. thought, you know, it was not only incredibly offensive, I thought it was appalling and, um, you know, personally um, difficult for me to hear as, as, someone, as someone with Indian background myself. Mm. Um, and so I, I remember thinking at the time, you know, Vidya, you need to, you need to not wear your emotions on your face because the moment I tell the moment I show them that I'm an enemy to them, that's when I would lose access. And I really wanted to be able to continue doing my research and continuing my conversations with them. So I knew I needed to maintain, um, you know, just, I needed to just sit there and not, not, um, frown, not smile, just have a neutral look on my face. And that's possibly one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. Um, and so that's, that was a moment where I had never realized that people could be so cruel and just laugh at something so awful. Um, and I, yeah, I remember that being a, a particularly difficult moment for me. Um, so the, the social dynamics were really strange um, and really difficult for me as a person of color to navigate without getting myself shut out. Mm. which would which would have completely undermined you know my entire mission there which was to understand these people and talk to them but how did that how did that work because surely they must they must be able to guess that you're not neutral right or did they they did yeah they, <laughs> they they definitely did and you know they they would ask me all the time what i thought um and i would tell them what i thought you know i didn't i didn't in in one-on-one conversations or small group conversations i didn't i didn't hide what i was thinking mm. and you know as i as i got to know people in the movement a bit better they also opened up and were more vulnerable to me around their question the questions that they had around their own ideology um, and things that they had been questioning and so i i realized very early going into this that i would need to be as honest as I could be with them about who I was, why I was there and about my beliefs. And I would need to demonstrate vulnerability with them in order for them to demonstrate vulnerability with me and be honest with me. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I didn't hide who I was. That said, um, when I was in larger groups and with people that I didn't know, um, you know, I also was conscious of my own physical safety, my own, um, you know, personal security, um, 
I, I actually, I did in smaller groups, I started to trust the people that I was mm-hmm. with. And so I, for the most part felt secure, but once I got into larger groups with lots of people that I didn't know, um, you know, I, I was very conscious, especially being a woman, but especially being a woman of color in these large groups of white men who all hold white nationalist beliefs. I was very conscious that I could very easily become an enemy at any moment and very easily the attention could all turn towards me. And so in settings like that, where I don't feel like I can trust everyone around me, um, it was really important for me not to draw attention. (laughs) I say not to draw attention to myself. Obviously I drew Mm -hmm. attention to myself as the only woman of color in a room like this, but um, it was important for me not to draw any additional attention to myself by, um, you know, exposing my personal beliefs in that setting when the people, when, when not everyone there knew me and actually most of the people there were skeptical of me and didn't understand why I was there. It sounds like a horror film. Do you know what I mean? Like it sounds like a thriller where like it's such a sensitive balance and you, you know, one look or one smile or one frown. Like was it, were you, were were you with them all the time? And then, oh, did you like, did you end up going back to a hotel somewhere and then breathing a bit and getting out of that tension or how, you know, how long were you there for? How, how much did it affect your everyday life? Cause it must, it must've been so hard. It, it was really hard. Um, I mean, I, it, it was the hardest thing I've, I've ever done in my life. Um, and I, and, and I wouldn't do it again. Um, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it at the time because it was transformational for me, but I wouldn't put myself through that again. Um, it was really emotionally hard. Um, it was, it was, it was, um, you know, you find yourself surrounded by people who are just all day, every day talking about hateful things Um, And just the level of paranoia I found really difficult to um, escape from. So their their paranoia about ethnic minorities, about immigrants, about people of color. I I found myself thinking, you know, if if somebody, if if you genuinely believe what these people believe, of course you'd be panicking. I mean, it's, mm. it's a terrifying, to be one of these people, the world must seem terrifying. And, and I don't, and I found myself thinking, I don't know how these people cope with their belief system because it's just, it's just a terrifying way of experiencing the world, being that afraid of people who are different from you and mm. being that paranoid that those people are, you know, taking, taking over and that, that you're going to be eradicated and all of these things. And so I found that really hard to escape from. And there were days where I, um, it was too much for me and I needed to retreat from it. I did retreat every, every, every evening. I went, I went back to, um, to the, the, um, kind of hostel. I was staying in a kind of, um, in a, a hostel outside on the outskirts of, of Stockholm, but I had my own room. Um, and I retreated to that space every day. And there were some times where I needed to take whole days, um, by myself, just to uh, regroup and mm-hmm. remember who I was and talk to my family and talk to friends and remind myself of who Vidya Ramalingam was rather than thinking about, um, about the Vidya that had been immersed in, in this world. Um, and yeah, it, you know, it, it really does take a toll on you. It does wear, wear you down. Um, 
you know, I, 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 I did it in, in short bursts and then I would always pull myself out for another short burst so that I tried to have a bit of equilib- equilibrium, mm. but it was tough and I wouldn't do it again. Not, not yeah. personally, not personally. Yeah. It's, uh, well, what do you, I, well, what do you think or what do you know is the reason for, cause you, it does sound like they must be leading a horrible life. You know, it must be really stressful to be them and believe in all these things and be constantly scared. But I mean, I would guess logically if then someone said to them, actually, everything's fine. The people who are different from you are nice people and they're not trying to take over, but you should be as a, as a white supremacist, you should be like, Oh, thank God. You know, now I'm, now I feel much better. But instead, they don't believe that. Why? Why are people so inclined to exist in a space where everyone's dangerous and horrible? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I wish I wish people um, encountered facts and immediately believed them and immediately <laughs> um, realized that they didn't need to be scared. But um, as we all know, that's not how the world yeah. works. Um, you know, I, I I think people people arrive at white supremacist movements for a whole a whole range of different reasons. And I, I've really, you know, people ask me often, is there a type? Is there a, you know, a storyline or a particular type of person with a particular type of background that ends up in a white supremacist movement? And unfortunately, that's just not the case. The stories that lead people into this worldview are so diverse. I've seen incredibly impoverished people who are basically homeless who entered into a white supremacist movement because the white supremacists gave them a home, gave them, um, you know, protection, physical protection, mm. um, which they were otherwise just um, being attacked on the streets and this group protected them. And so it was literally a kind of life or death op- option for them. And they chose the, the life option to join a white supremacist movement, which would, which would help them and give them, give them physical security. So I've seen that story. And on the complete other end of the spectrum, I've seen incredibly wealthy people who grew up with every possible luxury who end up falling into this worldview. And so the stories that get people there are completely different. I guess what I've learned over the years having now worked not only with people who were in these movements, but also people who have come out the other end and who have turned their lives around is that ultimately in nearly every story that I've heard about um, you know, someone's journey into these movements, it almost always comes back to personal connections. It's a kind of a human relationship. It's a person usually that got someone into this. Mm. And, and I, you know, I, so many of the people that end up in these movements were in a position where they needed, they needed to feel a part of something. They needed to feel like they belonged somewhere and a human connection. Somebody brought them into the movement and that was their, that convinced them that actually this was going to be the place where they could be someone and where they could, you know, they could, they, they were a part of something. So, um, you know, the, yeah, it's lots of different reasons that people join these groups, but that human connection is so important. And it's one of the things that I started to realize, well, if human relationships are what, what are, is, is what's getting people into these movements, it's, it's going to be human relationships that get people out. And as I started to talk to former neo-Nazis and former white supremacists and people who had left neo-Nazi movements and turned their, their lives around, I started to realize that actually there was a similarity in almost all of their stories, that the thing that got them out of these movements was not someone coming along and shouting facts at them or, or telling them, did you know that's not actually factually correct? 
it was actually a personal relationship with either a family member. So maybe it was, um, you know, a partner that pulled them out. Um, maybe it was a counselor or a therapist that they were seeing who realized that they were falling into this worldview and, and managed to pull them out of it. Um, yeah, it's always personal connections that get, gets people back out. And so that was really the key for me. That was the, the kind of, um, you know, the light bulb moment was, mm. okay, if we're going to, if we're going to stand any chance at, at ending this problem of white supremacy around the world, it's got to start with human interactions with these people. It's got to start with, with one-to-one interactions with people who are falling down this rabbit hole. And so you you mentioned that people had doubts. How how many of the ones you spoke to? I mean, is it a are there loads of them that are doubting it and that sort of on some level know that it might not be a good thing? Or I mean, how far in are the people? Because if they're just there because they have safety and a home, but maybe do you know what I mean? Like how 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 many of them are actually fully fully believing in it? So I wish I had I wish I had. Um you know, some really strong evidence or an exact percentage to tell you on uh, on this. But what I'm going to tell you is really just my, it's my, my kind of feeling on this, just having talked to so I many want. people I in these movements. I, I think, <laughs> I think most people who are in these movements are questioning it. I think most people who are in these movements are not happy And, and, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, Sophie, like, you know, these movements are, the worldview is a terrifying one, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's filled with paranoia and hate. Like that's not a, that's not a good life for anyone. Mm -hmm. And I, and my feeling is that most people who are in this, these movements know that, but they end up trapped in it and you can be trapped in it for a whole range of reasons. Sometimes, you know, some people get trapped in these movements because they've already abandoned all of their other social networks by joining up and, you know, all of their other friends, their family members have already walked away saying, you know, I'm not going to be friends with the neo-Nazi. And so they, once they're in it, they're kind of stuck there because they don't know how they would even get out. Mm. Um, you know, they don't know how they would reconnect with people that they burned bridges, bridges with already. So sometimes people get physically stuck there, stuck there. And sometimes people get mentally or emotionally stuck there because, because, you know, they're grasping onto an ideology that they think will solve all of their problems, even if that ideology makes them more anxious or makes them more, um, makes them, you know, more depressed or paranoid, they maybe latch onto it because they think it will solve their problems. Mm. So, so yeah, I, my feeling is that most people in these movements are not happy. And that's actually something that we need to latch onto when we're trying to pull people out of these movements, because we need to show them that actually there is another way, you know, there's another option for you. Even if you're stuck, even if you think you're stuck in a white supremacy movement, you can get out. There is a way out. I mean, that's, in a weird way, both heartbreaking and hopeful at the same time, right? It is. Yeah, it is. I, I am, I am incredibly optimistic actually about what is possible when it comes to dealing with hate and especially on the internet, which I realize might be surprising to some people because the news is, you know, telling us every single day about how, you know, the horrible uses of the internet to, um, you know, by trolls and by Mm. um, people who are pushing out hateful, um, you know, hate messages and using the internet to facilitate violence and disinformation and all of that. I mean, it, 
it can seem very scary. At the same time, the internet has brought us so many incredible tools. You know, it's it's given us so much power as internet users. And you know, if we can if we can build the right systems, if we can use technology in the right ways, it actually can create a mechanism for us to reach quite literally every single person who is posting a piece of hate content online. And I you know, I, I am I am 100% a fan of removing hate content, so I shouldn't, just so that nobody mistakes me for um, being someone who thinks hate content should be left online, but at the same time, when you remove that piece of hate content, you know, it's just the, the content that's removed, not the person that posted it. They're going to keep posting this content. They're still going to exist in the world around us. So, you know, the, the opportunity, I think, and the thing that makes me optimistic is that every time someone posts a hateful comment on Facebook or posts a video which is glorifying, um, you know, neo-Nazis or Hitler, um, every time they post that, they are leaving me a digital footprint which is telling me exactly what they believe. And even if I don't know who they are, um, you know, I'm not saying that we need to go into anyone's um, personal details online if they haven't put it into the public domain. Even without knowing who they are, they have given me a way to reach them. And, and actually, I, I think we need to get so much more creative as, you know, the anti-racism sector, as the extreme, the, the um, sector responding to extremism, the sector that's dealing with security threats online. We need to get way more creative about how we find these people posting this content online and ensure that every single time they post it, we are there and we are offering alternatives and we are offering them information to challenge their beliefs and we're reaching out and starting conversations with them. So what do you do then when you have the uh, you have that digital footprint? Just well, the you know the your company. So what we do, what we do is um, we take that digital footprint and we essentially find those users at on any digital platform where they're posting this content. And we'll reach out to them in some way. Sometimes what we do is we're offering them safer options. So the best example of this is, um, you know, we'll in some cases just repurpose the kind of technology that corporates are using to sell us products and to get us to spend more money. So, you know, Nike runs ads um, to sell me sneakers and Coca-Cola runs ads to sell me Coca-Cola. And that exact same technology we then use to find people that through their digital footprint are telling us that they like white supremacist, um, you know, white supremacist propaganda or white power music. And we're ensuring that somewhere along their journey online that they see advertisements which offer them safer alternatives. And sometimes it's sometimes we do offer them content which tries to challenge the ideology. Sometimes we try and offer them a service whereby they can actually talk to a counselor and actually end up in a face-to-face -face meeting with someone, which ultimately, ultimately is my objective to get people from posting hate content online into one-to-one -one conversations, whether that's online or offline. In other cases, we're not using advertising tools, but we're actually just proactively reaching out to people and starting conversations with them online. So we essentially send teams of social workers into the online space to start conversations with people who are posting this sort of hate content. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation from the start. Lots of people might not respond in the first instance, but what we're always hoping for is that someone will at least respond back, even if they respond back with a, you know, with a fuck you or something, something aggressive at first, 
at least that's a starting point to a conversation. At least they've reached back out to us and we can, we can do something with that. You know, we can use that. So yeah, we, we use their digital footprint to reach out with, to them in some way online with the ultimate aim being, you know, I, I want to start a conversation with them. I want to get them into a conversation. How many have you had, have you gotten out of it? Is it, how easy is it once you reach out to them to, I was about to say save them. That sounds a bit much maybe, but how easy is it to get them out? Well, I mean, we, so I guess maybe what I should say first is that there are hundreds of thousands of people who are posting this sort of content online. So there's, mm. there's so many, there's a large audience to work with. Um, we, we tend to find that people are more willing to interact with the content we're giving them or the messages we're giving them if those messages aren't necessarily challenging their ideology up front, mm. but if those messages are offering the chance to talk or are addressing some underlying anxiety they might have. So we've found, we found that um, when we've tested messages offering mental health or social health or well-being support, so messages which say, Do you feel anxious? Um, you know, here's something which might help help you. Or do you feel hopeless? Here's something which might help you out. We found that those messages work really well with neo-Nazis online. When we've tested these sorts of messages, both with neo-Nazis as well as the general public, we find that neo-Nazis are 48% more likely to engage with that content than the general public. And if they're even more extreme than, than that, if they're people who, you know, are interested in joining the KKK or are thinking about donating to the KKK and have indicated through their digital footprint that they're actually planning to be affiliated with a white supremacist movement, they are 115% more likely than the general public to interact with those messages if they're kind of oriented around well-being or oriented around dealing with anxiety or hopelessness. And so this was really groundbreaking for us when we found this because it really did highlight to us that if we're gonna if we're gonna be effective at getting them to respond to or engage with our messages online, we have to get human with them. You know, we can't just we can't just talk to them about um, you know migration statistics or talk to them about um, statistics about ethnic minorities. We actually just need to get to a conversation with them and we need to acknowledge that they're human and that they are likely dealing with all forms of anxiety, especially given the worldview that they subscribe to. And that that's actually going to be the most likely way that we'll be able to open up a conversation with them. How do you, how do you deal with that? The, the fact that these people what they say is appalling and the way uh, you know that the way they feel about you is um, scary, not scary, unsafe. It's unsafe. You might be in danger of doing this. And yet you're sort of, you also know that they're these very scared and anxious and sad humans. And can, can you balance the I know, empathy, sympathy with the personal instinct of I don't know do you know what I mean it's yeah it's a I do weird situation isn't it I do yeah it's a it's a weird situation I mean what I'll say is a lot of the a lot of the frontline workers that we are sending into the online space to have these conversations are trained social workers so you know they're they're people who um you know non-judgmental conversations is is their bread and butter. It's what they're trained mm -hmm. to do. They're, you know, the people who are our therapists and our and the social workers that work in the communities around us, 
they're good at doing this, even with people who hold really, you know, awful beliefs. You know, I, that said, you know, I, even for me, having worked in this, worked, you know, tried these sorts of methods for a while now as a woman of color, um, interacting with white supremacists, it can be really tough. I mean, I've, you know, I've personally experienced a lot of trolling. Um, I've had articles, I had a feature piece written on me in the Daily Stormer, which is a, a U.S. neo-Nazi website, which is incredibly popular. Um, you know, I've had my name listed in um, white supremacist documents, which they've called war plans and, and have listed my name. So I've, you know, I've, I, I've experienced this per, really personally over the last several years. And while I don't want to, I don't, ever want to put myself physically at risk and I don't want to put my family at risk at the same time. Um, you know, I, I think it's because of my experiences having spoken to these people in real life and having been in their living rooms and spoken to their wives and met their kids. I, I, I think I, I just inherently feel hopeful that once you break past that first layer with someone, once you just get them into a real conversation, a real human conversation, forget about debating ideology. Like, let's just talk about music. Let's talk about something which is, has nothing to do with ideology. I feel confident that once you break past that first, that first layer, that first barrier, that actually you can have a real conversation with these people, even if you're coming from totally different planets in terms of your worldview, even if, even if you are the enemy and I just believe that because I've seen it and I've experienced it. And I also, I, I, I you know, I, I've, I've seen it for other people too. I know, I know former, I know and am friends with now former neo-Nazis who have told me that the first moment they started questioning their ideology was when a person of color, they realized that a person of color was not treating them as the enemy and wasn't actually the enemy to them that actually this person was going to be someone who was there for them and someone who saw the best in them and someone who reached out to them. And so while I'm not advocating here for every person of color to go hug a Nazi and to, <laughs> and to, to go out there and befriend your local Nazis, that's not what I'm, what I'm encouraging us to do. I do, um, you know, acknowledge that for, you know, if we're going to stand any chance at getting the, the people who are really hard end believers out of this, that the best way for us to do it is to is to reach them on a human level, not by reaching them with counterfacts. And so, you know, that that is going to be a tough piece of work to do. And it does take an emotional toll on people who have those conversations with people in those movements, but it's important. And so, you know, I'm 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 willing, I'm willing to do it as long as I'm seeing results from it. And and we are seeing results from it. I have, I have a question that I don't really want to ask because I don't want to hear your answer. <laughs> um, so in terms of the rhetoric around, you know, in especially activist groups and a lot of, you know, bit more far left wing people, and I am 100% one of them, people saying, uh, you know, punch Nazis and, uh, you know, laughing at the meme of that Nazi getting punched in the face and, it's, which is the same kind of rhetoric as saying all men are trash. And is that, because I've always seen that, I don't think I've ever thought it was helpful. You know, I've never thought that Nazis would see that and then go, oh, I shouldn't be a Nazi anymore. I've always thought of it as helpful for the people who've been oppressed and 
that it might be a nice, it's probably a good feeling of, you know, expressing, expressing that fear and um, hopelessness it is of being part of the oppressed group. But is it better to not have that sort of rhetoric or is that damaging? Well, I, I completely agree that it serves, it can serve a really important, useful function for people who've been targeted by these groups and, you know, who need that feeling of solidarity, who need to feel protected and need to, need to feel like their communities and the people around them have their backs. So I, I would never make the claim that we need to stop you know, putting that sort of content out there because I see that it can be meaningful for some people who've experienced and been targeted, who've, who've experienced bad things and been targeted by these groups. Um, it's definitely not helpful to people in neo-Nazi groups. It definitely doesn't make things better. Um, and they, you know, unfortunately, they thrive off of that. They, the, the white supremacist worldview is based on the idea that that a race war is coming. You know, this is the basis of all white supremacist ideology. They believe that a race war is coming. And so their belief is that, you know, when they see people posting photos of, you know, punch a Nazi, their belief is like their, their feeling for that is great. This is one step closer towards the race war. And so I personally don't um, subscribe to that, those sorts of approaches to talking about neo-Nazis because I know that they like it. I know that they thrive off of it, that it feeds into their worldview that conflict is the only way forward and that they'll always be hated. So therefore they always need to hate us. And so, um, you know, I, it's, it's a tough one because I, I realize that um, groups that have been targeted need coping, coping mechanisms and need ways to, to feel protected. Um, but, you know, I think that sort of content probably should stick to the communities that need to feel protected by it rather than necessarily, um, you know, getting, rather than necessarily um, reaching out to neo-Nazis with that because it, it won't necessarily, unfortunately, it won't necessarily help. And I, I get why people make those memes. I get why people make those images because it feels good to feel like you're fighting back. Um, but it's just important for people to, to remember that actually um, those sorts of images can have a harmful impact actually in some ways. Because um, if a neo-Nazi sees that and gets riled up, it might just inspire them to post more hate content online. Well, shit. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, fair, I, I feel like in my, in my, entire, my entire sort of activist-y, journey or whatever has gone from becoming aware of all of this and then being extremely angry and fighty and like fuck them and you know a lot of shouting and which was all very necessary for me personally and maybe also for some people listening but I I'm kind of feeling this uh this sort of frustration in I don't know if it's growing up or whatever it is but in the realization that where 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 my anger and, and most people's anger is legit. Uh, it's kind of annoying that perhaps the answer is that we have to be the, I mean, it's not about being the bigger person, is it? But we again have to be the people to, I don't know, fix it or, you know, it's, do you know what I mean? Like it feels like they yeah. get to kind of act on all of their emotions and just do yeah. all this damaging stuff. And then, 
we we can actually fix this by being super nice to them and that feels really unfair <laughs> i i totally i totally get that and i yeah and i want to make sure that you know every, everyone who's who's listening knows i'm i'm not saying that um you know being nice to nazis is the way forward <laughs> um, that's definitely not what i'm saying and no, you know the um the people who need to have these conversations with Nazis are social workers, ultimately. Mm. You know, I, I myself am not a social worker. In another life, that's absolutely the, the, the degree that I would get. And I, I wish I, I wish I, I were a social worker because um, I have huge admiration for people that do that work. Um, those are the people who need to be having those conversations. And even in those conversations, it's not about being nice to them. It's not about um, it's not about confirming um, you know that they that they were right that their experiences are right and that they everything that they've the way that they've experienced the world is correct. It's not about um, it's not about showing them love. It's about having a conversation with them and asking them questions, which mm. ultimately when you ask a neo-Nazi questions and when you really ask them questions, like when you really get into a human to human conversation with them. And I, you know, I, I'm saying this because I've done it. Ultimately, when you start asking them questions and that you get past that defensive barrier, you oftentimes find in the conversation that they they realize when they're getting asked questions that they don't know the answers to all those questions. And, you know, you, you've got to reach a point in the conversation where they're not just like throwing defensive answers back at you because they want to show you that they're right. You want to reach a point in the conversation where they realize, huh, oh yeah, actually I was told that by, you know, my other neo-Nazi friend, but actually I hadn't thought about it. Um, you want to reach a point in the conversation where they just realize that they realize on their own accord that their ideology doesn't really make sense because it doesn't make sense. And sometimes that comes naturally through, through just a kind of one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone where you're asking questions and you don't even need to tell them you're wrong. They just get it themselves from the conversation. And so, and this is what, you know, therapists are brilliant at doing therapists, um, you know, a good therapist won't necessarily just tell you as soon as you start talking, no, you're wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. They will ask you questions and get you to figure out yourself that what you're yeah, doing is probably classic. not good for you. <laughs> and so this is the, this is the same, it's the exact same approach. It's that approach that's needed. But again, you know, I, I, as someone who's experienced hate myself, who's been trolled myself, you know, I would be lying if I haven't, when I've seen something posted online about me, if I haven't been like, what the fuck, you know, mm. like and said, and, and said something which was completely unhelpful about the person that posted it, you know, I would be lying if I, if I didn't say that. So it can be an important coping mechanism. But the thing that's going to actually get neo-Nazis to change their minds are those non-judgmental social work conversations, um, which really get at the heart of why that individual person is there. Um, Cause it's so many different reasons that get people to that, to that hateful viewpoint. And you've got to mm. get at the heart of that to get each individual person out. So how has all of this, say from the beginning, you started doing this work till now, how, if it has, how has it changed? I mean, everything we do, right? Every single thing that happens in our lives help build us in, to, in some um, to some extent and how has this how has this changed you what has this done to you um do you mean how has how has um my work with neo-nazis and white supremacists changed me 
Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah I guess you know because it, it must be a constant test of uh, your. You must constantly have been thinking about your own uh, relation, your own experiences. You must have been thinking about sort of, you know, that we're talking about the tension you were experiencing in those groups, and I imagine it must yeah. do something to your empathy or your ability to empathize or. You know, yeah. put, you said you put yeah. things into boxes. Would you say you still, is that, is that sort of what you do? And is that because of that? Or has that helped with that? Or I guess um, it's a good question. I guess it's this, doing this work has changed me in a few ways. Um, one thing is it's made me realize that people aren't inherently bad. You know, I, and I guess I'm, a, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a naturally optimistic person. Maybe I, you know, I, I, and I, I accept that I accept that other people might not see the world this way, but I've just met so many people who have done horrible, bad things. I mean, I've met neo-Nazis that have been incredibly violent towards people that look like me or look like my mother or my father. And, and yet I've, I've seen people who have done those things and have come out the other end and are incredibly remorseful and and live with guilt and 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 manage to turn their lives around and and are people that I now can connect with and I now can even really strangely build friendships with. And so I guess a huge learning for me is just that um yeah people aren't inherently bad but people can do really bad things and we need to find a way to, you know, if there's going to be any hope for us as a society, we need to find a way to grant them the possibility to change. It's like someone can't, I, it would be a doomsday scenario if everyone, if every neo-Nazi, like once a neo-Nazi, always a neo-Nazi, mm. um, if every neo-Nazi, if we think that they're just inherently bad and that they will never be anything else, that to my mind is like a doomsday scenario for the globe. Um, we've got to, you know, we've got to believe that change is possible. We have to believe that underneath a person doing bad things is not necessarily a good person, but just a person, a human being, and that the bad is something which can be stripped away. So I guess that's one learning for me. Um, I guess, yeah, and you know, the, the experience of doing this work, of, of talking to people in these movements and the experience of being trolled myself, um, to go back to your question about putting emotions in boxes, um, that is definitely a coping mechanism for me. Um, and it probably has been since I, since I was a kid is, you know, to, um, to be able to get by, you sometimes just need to put your emotions to the side for a moment. And I, I see myself doing that now, although I try more and more to be conscious of the impact that this work has on me. Um, and I, I try to, um, I try to, to make sure I, I, um, recognize that rather than just like, turning a blind eye to it because I think you can um, build up this trauma over many years and not deal with it if you don't acknowledge it. And so I'm trying to get better at doing that though. I'm not, I haven't solved that problem for myself and um, you know, I, I welcome any advice from your, from your listeners who maybe, <laughs> who maybe know how to recognize and acknowledge your own trauma. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. Are you in therapy? I am. Yes, I am in therapy. Who isn't in therapy? Isn't everyone in therapy? I wish I <laughs> wish everyone was in therapy. <laughs> Honestly, not enough people are in therapy. <laughs> 
Um, but it's, you know, it's important. It's important to look after yourself. And if, if not in therapy, at least, um, you know, if you've experienced hate online, if you've experienced trolling, if you've experienced something harmful online, it is so important to talk to someone about it. It's mm. so important to, you know, talk to a friend, talk to a family member about it because that can sit with you. Um, mm. and, and it can, it can be really harmful on a personal level. Um, so yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be a therapist, but it's important to have people around you that you can talk to about it. And I rec- I don't know if you've read it. Um, Zoe Quinn's book, Uh, I think it's called Crash Override. Oh no, I haven't read it. They were the um, uh, the Gamergate, the main Gamergate victim, yeah. the person that um, basically they're still having to move house and change their address, and and you read the book and you go, oh wow, and you have to remind yourself this book was written so this person survived this. Because you, right. it's but it, it's hard to understand that they could right yeah but reading yeah. that as someone who's had you know serious death threats and you know find all this stuff about you on in, the internet reading that gave me at least a sort of a oh okay I'm not alone and also somehow this person has come out on the other side and seems to be really happy somehow and they yeah. were probably the <laughs> they had things done that was beyond anything I've tried. Yeah, I mean, human beings are incredibly resilient. I mean, yeah. human beings go through the most awful, un, you know, incomprehensible things and still somehow manage to be strong and come out the other end. Um, and so, yeah, I again, I'm I'm really optimistic about where we can go as as a society from here. It just will take, yeah, it'll take a lot of hard work. Um, but I I do think you know humans. Humans are resilient and humans can change. And that's, that's got to be the thing that keeps us hopeful. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. I'll ask you the last question then, which is perfect timing. So you're in the delivery room and you have just been born, but you're also you now and you're holding yourself as a baby, right? It's a little video. She's crying and crying. Because she was just born and inside the womb, it was all nice and lovely and warm and safe. And now she's out in the world and everything's loud. There's lights and sounds everywhere. She's like, what is this? So she looks at you and she's like, hold on. Wh- what is happening? Is this what life is? Is life just going to be full of <laughs> This sounds, sounds terrifying. <laughs> exactly, right? You're like, what? Oh, I want to go back in the womb. And she looks at you and she's basically asking you, what's this going to be? What is going to happen? What is, what is this? Is this really bad? Because it seems really bad. And you can answer her. You can't give her any advice. You can't change anything in the future. Everything will happen exactly the way it's been happening. Uh, she won't remember the conversation, but you can say something to her in that moment to tell her what she's about to embark on. What would you say to teeny tiny baby you? Gosh, that's a lot of pressure. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, what would I say to to baby Vidya? I I would say, um, you know, you are going to be filled with insecurities throughout your whole life. You're going to feel insecure about everything, all the things that kids feel insecure, that girls feel insecure about, that teenagers feel insecure about, um, and a lot of that is going to come down to your identity and who you are and your race and 
your and you, you know your your um, ethnic background and you know being an Indian American and being a girl and you need to remember every time you feel insecure and question who you are and wish you were someone else you need to remember you're not always going to feel this way and one day you are going to embrace who you are and you're going to love who you are and you're going to remember you're going to remember that it's possible to become a confident person and it's possible to it's possible to feel pride in who you are and i yeah i would tell myself um to remember during, during those moments of insecurity that one day you'll look back on that and feel proud of who you are and what you did and just hang hang on hang on tight and wait for that day because it will come um i think you know when i as i when we started this conversation sophie and and i told you how like as a kid you know i grew up feeling um ashamed of my racial identity and wishing i was a white kid mm-hmm. i look back on that now as someone who is incredibly proud to be indian um incredibly proud to be the kid of immigrants um and now i wish i hadn't hadn't um abandoned so much of my indian identity growing up as a kid i wish i had embraced it more and so i guess I, i i wish i could tell myself when i was a kid like hang on to this stuff don't push it away don't push away the things that you feel insecure about right now don't push away the things that you feel ashamed of right now because one day you're going to want to hold on to that and it's going to be important to you so um that's what i would say to myself is um hang on to those things because they're you and they're important to you and they will be important to you even if they're not important to you now. Do you still need to be told that? I I think I tell myself that all the time now actually. I do, you know, um, you know, I I I think you know as with probably lots of people who are listening to your podcast I struggle with um insecurity and confidence issues all the time. Um even 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 affiliated with my own race um you know when i i, I said earlier that i question all the time whether something i experienced was racism mm. um yeah I, i this actually happened to me um a a couple weeks ago i uh, i was staying at a hotel i was I, i was trying to stay at a hotel for work and i arrived at the hotel and they told me that they didn't have any rooms available and i knew that they had rooms available um and i was just a walk in off the streets um you know i didn't mm. i didn't look homeless i you know i was just walking off the streets though and um and they turned me away and i i called them later and found out that they did have rooms um and that the person at the desk had just turned me away and i found myself after that just riddled with self doubt about myself and thinking you know should i have worn something different should i have been wearing makeup should i have you know had my hair a certain way what would it have taken mm. for them to accept me at that hotel and i and i i was asking myself all these questions and i had to stop myself and remember this is not about you stop questioning what you could have done differently this is you know you you shouldn't have to be anyone else to be to to be allowed to stay at a hotel in 2020 mm. in mm. Europe um and so i i almost every day have to remind myself that my insecurities are um you know will pass and just to and to remind myself that you know you will feel proud about who you are you just need to push past this bout of insecurity um and remind yourself that um it's important to stay strong and remember who you are it's i don't know how to phrase this 
without it sounding very strange. I guess what I'm wondering is that sort of subtle, um, well, it's not subtle, is it? But it's kind of hidden away is such a, an almost an opposite type of racism to the neo-Nazis, right? Where it's literally mm-hmm. written on banners. Is there anything at all that feels like the only thing I really have to compare it to is, is fat phobia. And when it's someone that you Mm. are sort of friendly with who's fat phobic in such a subtle way, it, it can, it can really fuck you up to in a, in a whole other way than people on the internet going, you're a fat bitch. Cause when they do that, at least you can see it and you know what they feel. And it's in some ways easier to deal with. Do do you know what I mean? Is that, I I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I totally know what you mean. I mean, that, that incident at that hotel totally broke me. I mean, it, it really did. I, you know, it broke me down into tears and I am someone who on a daily basis, um, you know, watch, watches white supremacy content, um, and, and gets, you know, gets messages sent to me by neo-Nazis telling me, um, you know, all sorts of using all sorts of racist Mm. words and commenting on my looks. So, you know, I'm no stranger to, to, um, being targeted by, um, by racism, but there is something really different to experiencing it from someone that you didn't that you, that that you yeah that you, either either from someone that you know well and who you thought you trusted um mm. or experiencing it in a setting that you never anticipated to come across um racism in and yeah so that that experience really broke me and it took um you know it took it took i mean more than several days for me to build up my confidence again um and and yeah and you know those experiences happen so often mm. they happen um possibly even more often uh, than the kind of targeted hate by neo-Nazis or far-right extremists. Um, and so, you know, that that's something which I think, um, you know, yeah, I, I, it's tough to, it's tough to cope with, but you've just got to remind yourself that you will come out the other side and remind yourself not to question what you should be doing differently and mm-hmm. remember that it's, it, it's their fault they they did something wrong that's not how someone should treat you mm. and yeah i think forcing yourself not to or sorry reminding yourself not to blame yourself is one of the hardest things to do but one of the most important things to do does it help that you're kind of part of the people who are fixing it it does yeah it you know it it that that definitely helps to feel like you're doing something, you're doing something to try and change it. But honestly, that doesn't, that never helps in the moment. Mm, (laughs) I mean, it didn't, um, after that moment, um, you know, I, it it didn't, I I remember some friends telling me like, Oh, remind yourself, you know, you, you work to counter this on a daily basis. You're making a difference. And that, unfortunately, that, that wasn't what I, that wasn't what would help me Mm. in the moment. In the moment, it felt so personal and it felt like such a personal hit um, that actually it took something, it took something else. It took, um, you know, yeah, realizing, realizing that I wasn't to blame here and, and, um, yeah, it took something kind of deeply personal and emotional to bring myself back from that rather than just reminding myself that I have a a job and do work and, um, you know, I'm an activist in some ways, um, to, to counter this. So, yeah, I, you know, sometimes I, I think it takes a range of things to get you back when you've been hit down, but, um, mm. you know, you find yourself, you find your way back. 
That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is, I could talk to you forever. There's so much I still want to ask you. <laughs> but, um, I may, I'll just ask to come back at some point. But as for now, <laughs> I want to say thank you so, so, so much for, um, for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's been, yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't, I don't talk about this very often from such a personal, um, you know, mm. yeah, talking about my personal background that often in doing this work. So it's, um, yeah, it's made me think about, about myself in, in a new way. So thank you. Oh, that's so kind. Where can people find your, your stuff? You have a TEDx talk, which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if anyone Googles, um, gosh, if I tell people to Google my name, they'll never know how to spell it, but, um, but I'm sure they'll see <laughs> they it on your podcast. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If they Google my name, they'll, they'll, um, yeah, you'll find the TEDx video and a couple other things. Um, and also happy for people to reach out to me if they have any questions. That's so lovely. Thanks Thank so much. So, Sophie. So much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Vidya. Go and find her on social media and thank her for doing this podcast uh, in these weird times. I, yeah, I hope you will. I'm now going to say thank you to all of the, well, all the people. I've already said thank you to those of you supporting me, uh, both the one-off donations and the patron. Uh, and of course, also, not even, it's not to just say thank you to the, the people who support me with $5 or more, although if you do do that, you become... Uh, a member of the list of VIPs, which are the people who will have their names read out loud at the end, apart from the ones who have specifically asked not to have your name mentioned. Um, and yeah, so thank you to everyone. Also the $1 people and the $2 people and, and the more dollar people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and now I'm going to read the list with them. Um, oh my God. So many new names. Oh, <laughs> You're so fucking lovely. Okay. I want to say a massive thank you to Andrea Papillon, Andrew January, uh, Andy Walker, Anya Gnoblauk, Autumn Blue Sky, Barry Nolson, Caitlin Catposse, Cherry Winter, Danny Becker, Daniel Reifersheed, Danielle Johnson, you're new. Welcome. To E, you're new. Welcome, E. To L, uh, you're not new, but you may have changed your name. Interesting. Uh, Emily Bindi, Emma Day, you're new, welcome. Felicitations, great name, you're new, welcome. Penelodon, Privacy of Sorrow, Aurora Teratops, a classic. Gillian Davidson, Grace Ann, Hannah Powell Smith, welcome, Hannah Powell. Then we have uh, Hannah Rose Tristram, ooh, two Hannahs, exciting. Harold uh, Van Dyke, Harry Minard, we have Holly Ritchie, welcome, Holly. Ida Sugo Larson, Josie, Kathleen Gulmanson, Kat- Catherine Williams, Katie Hatfield, Kim Williams, Kirstenta? Kirstenta, you're new. Um, Kirsten Davidson, ooh, there's a lot of the Kerr people. Um, Kirsten Davidson, Chrissy Nicholson, uh, Kristen Sillaby, Sedaby? That depends where you're from. Franson, you're new. Welcome, Kristen. Ooh, we have a Kirsten and a Kristen. Oh, it doesn't count. Laura Ingman, Laura Ingman, you're new. Welcome. Lillian Harry French, now available with raspberry flavor. <laughs> a classic. Liz Cassell, uh, M Dash, Maeve Holyhan, Maury Fraser, Megan Roberts, Nicola Ellison, welcome. You're new. Tigorific, uh, Paul Swaddle, Perpetual Motion, Pierre Feneu. Ooh, 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 ooh. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> now we have. Rachel England. Welcome, Rachel, because you know what, Rachel? 
We have Rachel England, Rachel Evenheim, Rachel Furley, Rachel Phillips. That is fucking four, four, four Rachels. We have four Rachels. Let's see how we go. Ooh. <laughs> Ragdoll, Ryan Rivers, Robert Knowles, Robin Kepper. We have a Samantha Jolie. Welcome so much, Samantha. Sarah Farah Agassith. Then we have Sarah Ellett, Sarah Plumer, and Susie Tyler. Oh, oh, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. Oh, so we have three Sarahs and we have four Rachels. The so Rachels are winning. Oh my God. <laughs> Susie Tyler, Victoria Greer. Thank you so, so, so much to every single one of you. This is, is emotional for me to, to say this um, and to have done this episode. And I hope that you are staying inside. I hope that you're keeping yourself busy. I hope that you are um, Zooming and all of that with your loved ones. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to Dave Pickering for editing this episode. I'm so sorry. I sent it out so late because I was OCD painting my entire flat. Uh, thank you to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle and to Justine McNichol for the logo. This podcast was produced by Dying Alone Limited. I will speak to you next week. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. Bye. Oh, pa.